how are you transforming your people, not just through application, not by being relevant only you know, in the terms of like a you know moralistic application, but also just helping people to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that beauty is best seen in the face of Jesus. The pattern that the early fathers show us is a pattern that we should follow. We should start with the text and the historical sense. You're listening to the Holy Joys Podcast, co-hosted by Jonathan Arnold and Dr. David Fry. Visit us at holyjoys.org and stay tuned for weekly discussions of theology and ministry practice, all for a holy, happy church. We had a listener uh, submit a question to us about uh, something that was said along the lines of of Christian preaching and our tendency to uh, over-moralize um, in our preaching. So moralistic, a moralistic tendency, especially we see that among, you know, fundamentalists and conservative Christians. Um, there can be that tendency. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, our preaching should not be focused on um, practical application, helping Christians to live their, their daily Christian lives. Um, but when, when that becomes reductionistic or even uh, is, is kind of reflects like problematic theological um, commitments or understandings or misunderstandings, uh, it can be very dangerous, very toxic to the church. So we thought we would take a little time here to talk through, you know, what do we mean by moralistic preaching? Um, how, how, what are the worst expressions of that maybe? But then what are some more subtle ways in which we see that tendency and how can we combat that in our teaching and preaching? So I thought maybe you could start out, Dr. Fry, by just giving us um, just a little bit of, of uh, a picture of how the worst of moralism and the history of the church. And then maybe after we discuss, you know, some of the theological issues, we can move towards some really practical examples uh, of, of uh, what this looks like when you prepare your sermon, when you get up in the pulpit as a, as a pastor. Yeah. When you, th- when you talk about the worst examples, my mind immediately goes to a Pelagius in the early fifth century and any Wesleyan or Arminian, uh, should be well aware of Pelagianism because we've probably been accused of it at some time in our life or another, um, rightfully so or not, hopefully not rightfully so. But yeah, so Pelagius was an early fifth uh, century uh, lay preacher uh, in Rome, and uh, Augustine uh, encountered really actually um, not Pelagius initially, but some who had been under his influence who came to his area of North Africa and were teaching a, a, a what we might call moral moralistic teaching now. Uh, what was happening in Rome is Pelagius, a, a lay preacher teacher, was really coming down hard on a number of cultural social issues, uh, really come down hard on Christians. And... Uh, teaching them that they have everything that they within themselves by nature to overcome uh, maybe some worldly habits that he had had identified and particular you know restrictions that he felt like Christians should be uh, recognizing and observing and that they're the only reason they weren't doing these things is just because they weren't putting the willpower to do it and so, uh, he, what Augustine found in Pelagius was a deep concern that he was excluding Christ from that process of 
becoming more like Christ, uh, that we need Christ to be like Christ. And uh, so uh, Pelagius actually preached a doctrine of provenient merit uh, before Augustine uh, responded and said, no, it's not provenient merit, it's provenient grace, and we must have grace. So it really came down for Augustine to a Christological issue that uh, Pelagius was preaching and teaching a Christian life that does not need the grace that Christ gives to us through his, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, and so, uh, so Augustine said, uh, no, it's, it's provenient grace. It is the grace of Christ that we need. Uh, we, we cannot live like Christ without the grace of Christ. Uh, the grace that is given to us from our creation, uh, you know, made in the image of God, uh, we have rejected that as fallen beings, and now we need the grace of Christ. And so uh, for him, it, it really came down to the sort of moralistic preaching that just circumvented Christ entirely. It was a Christological issue, which moralism, I still believe, does come down to a Christological uh, error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's helpful because I can hear – um, I can hear a moralistic preacher saying, well, yeah, you know, I affirm that if you live victorious, it's the, it's the power of Christ. They might affirm that. It's another thing for these, these uh, Christological convictions to actually shape your, your approach of the text, your preaching, your teaching, your emphasis. Um, so what would you say would be like some more subtle examples that you've seen of maybe a moralistic tendency that wouldn't be full-blown Pelagianism, but may rightly be called, you know, semi-Pelagian? as we hear that thrown around. Yeah, there are a lot of terms that people throw out there. So probably the most glaring is uh, God will do his part if you do your part. Right. Right. That sort of mentality. Um, And uh, I I don't even like to, I don't even like the... um, distinction between monergism and synergism. I, I just, sometimes in, in theology, I have to have those mm. discussions sometimes, but um, mm-hmm. I've not found them helpful uh, to this point, but you know, there I, I'm, a, right. I'm, so for those who may not be acquainted with, with those terms, so monergism is the word that means, you know, mono. So it's a, a single one actor, the one energy at work. So monergism, uh, synergism would be there's more than one, so presumably two or more um, um, actors. And so Reformed Calvinism, uh, strong Augustinianism, you know, they claim monergism, and Western Arminians are often uh, considered <laughs> to be synergists. Right. Well, that can be interpreted or, or come out as God does his part when we do our part. 
And I think that right. <laughs> not good. Yeah, I think I mentioned this before, but I'm st- I just still laugh about this every time I think about it. Uh, back back around Christmas time, there was this video of this dad and his little boy shoveling snow, and the little boy is like is his little shovel, and he face palms in the snow. <laughs> it's like this is my center, my kind of synergism. <laughs> not that we don't need to cooperate, we do. Not that we want to downplay the role of self discipline, you know. But even that, you know, the Holy Spirit is behind that. But to go back to your first example, I just heard someone say recently. Um, like, you know, God, God is able, God is able. And I'm like, amen. And he's like, but it all comes down to human beings. <laughs> it's like, whoa, you know, that's the mentality. Like God's just waiting for us to do our part. And then, you know, and I think that's too simplistic and it's really dangerous. It places too much, um, you know, in, in our hands. So one of the things I think people who have a moralistic tendency are concerned for is genuine transformation, uh, of, of, of the Christians. And I, I share that concern. Um, you know, I look at people that I've had the privilege to pastor and I, I, so such a desire. I mean, Paul says, uh, it's like giving birth, you know, you just want to see Christ formed in them. You want to see that transformation. And, um, one of the things that, one of the verses that I've come back to over and over and over again is second Corinthians three eighteen, where it says, uh, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So if we want to preach for transformation, people need to see Christ, you know, because Paul goes on to say in in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the same God that said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how do you behold the glory of the Lord? You see Jesus. And that brings me back to that, you know, whole Irenaean metaphor that we discussed before about how Christ is like the, um, the key and scripture has all these pieces of the mosaic and Christ is the key that shows you how to put them together. And the image that you're trying to, to show people is Christ. And when people see the glory of Christ, they're changed and they're transformed. So, um, that, that Christocentric reading, that Christ-centered reading, interpretation, and then proclamation of who Christ is, what he's done for us, provides the foundation, the context, the motivation um, for the more practical application, the, the, what does Christian ethics look like, how we live that out, um, but it also is itself transformative. Um, we don't just want people who conform to a list of rules. We want people who are changed. Um, so moralistic preaching, uh, I think it doesn't even accomplish what some are trying to set out to accomplish. It doesn't produce real transformation because it's it's more focused on us often than it actually is on Jesus. Yeah, yeah it is. In, in a second, I want to go to to preaching and make, try to make some points on that. But so, so in scripture, you, you mentioned second Corinthians, uh, were you in chapter three or three eighteen? Yeah. yeah. And of course we all know, uh, chapter seven, where we are instructed to cleanse ourselves, that there is a, a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier the word, uh, cooperation. Uh, I think there are a couple of key words that would be one, but another one that I think is prior is initiation. And that is that God is always the initiator of anything good, uh, anything good in the world, anything good in me, any change of character for the good in me is the product of the God who works in us to will and to do. Uh, it, we cannot take credit for earning grace like Pelagius wanted us to. 
and and he used that as a weapon. He used that to um, as as leverage. If he could convince people of this, then then you can manipulate people, right? Uh, well, God is the one who who pulls the strings, so to speak. Uh, the good news is that He has given us the Holy Spirit, who does. Uh, teach us everything that we need to walk in in fellowship with him day by day. And and, and then comes the word cooperation. And the question is, are we cooperating with what God has initiated? Cooperating means that we are not the initiator. We are not the first operator. We are the, we are the responder. And, and so I think there's, this is not to pull apart, personal responsibility. This is not right. to say we have no responsibility. I mean, no Christian in any of the major traditions of the Christian faith has ever said that, that you just, you know, stand here, be quiet and let God pour in, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a new, a new, uh, new behavior suddenly. No, it's, it is, there is cooperation there, but the key is God is always the initiator and we cannot do or will anything except through the the help of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that, uh, as I was reflecting in preparation for this discussion, that came to mind was actually um, the uh, the fourfold method of Scripture. And it may seem like a an odd place to go, but we recently had a uh, uh, an opportunity with our reading group, our Ad Fontes reading group, to to hear. Uh, more about origin and about uh, his might be a, called a threefold method, but the often patristic exegesis, especially in the Middle Ages, uh, going moving towards the Middle Ages rather, and then into the Middle Ages uh, is often known as the fourfold. Uh, so the quadriga is that right? Um, anyway, so the, the four senses being like the literal sense, the more typological sense. Um, or sometimes called the allegorical, which we t- sometimes split those up. But I think really, for seems like those are really pretty much the same the same thing. Uh, the moral or tropological sense, and this is where I think a lot of modern preaching and interpretation and application lands. It's it's really like our sermons are almost just like one long moral um, uh, application from a text. And then the final fourth sense would be the anagogical sense would be like looking at the end goal, the the last things, eschatological sense. So um, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to to illustrate, you know, what this might look like by taking a common example of uh, of, a, of a moralistic interpretation of a text, the, the famous story of David and Goliath, walk through this together and just reflect on how it tends to be preached, what that might reflect, and then how being attuned, even if you don't adopt the fourfold method, right? That's not the point here. It, being attuned to these, these uh, considerations when you're looking at a text can actually help you to have a much healthier uh, sermon. So how would you, so David and Goliath, why don't I just start? You share some of your experiences. How have you heard this great story? Every kid learns it in Sunday school. How have you heard it taught, preached? What are you familiar with? Right. So it's pretty similar to a lot of the Old Testament stories, right? We tend to moralize pretty quickly the Old Testament. And this is a symptom of um, people not reading Elizabeth Ochtemeyer's, you know, how to preach the Old Testament. Uh, no, it just <laughs> with, with an uncertainty or an uncomfortability to, of preaching the Old Testament because we don't preach it 
um, through uh, to Christ uh, through the lens of of Christ so often. So yeah, I mean, this was this is a pretty pretty straightforward. You know, we uh, you know, David and Goliath. Who do you want to be in the story? Right? You are. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you want to be David, and we always picture picture ourselves as David, and Goliath represents. Uh, you know, your physical uh, uh, you know, suffering that you're going through, that's a giant. Uh, you know, family matters, your financial struggles, those are all giants. Uh, the other thing would be, to use a New Testament example, is um, you know, Jesus calming the storm, right? So that's another analogy that we may use. You know, the storms of life or here, you know, the giants in your life. You know, how can you overcome your giant? And then we draw out, you know, points, you know, from, from this story and how it proceeds. And, and um, then this becomes a, you know, it could be a eight, 10, 12 point step, you know, process of how to <laughs> defeat whatever giant it is in your life. Right? Yeah. Well, the, the problem, the problem, obvious problem with that, there's no theological imagination in that at all. Right. <laughs> and there's just right. a no, no consideration of how this story fits into uh, the, the ongoing story that is being told here. Uh, certainly how we ought to read it through the lens of Christ. Um, in fact, honestly, that's a pretty secular take on scripture. Is it not? I mean, you you yeah. don't have to be a Christian to give a motivational talk from First Samuel seventeen, and uh, many Christian sermons are no more Christian than what a motivational speaker in some conference might be if they decide to use this, and it it probably is used. Yeah. So well, let's walk through these. Uh these senses. And I have had a very similar, similar experience, um, by the way. And it often ends with, if you just have enough faith, if you just, you know, stretch your face, faith muscle strong enough, you can defeat anything. You're like, so, and again, we'll get back to that because it's not like there's no kernel of truth there. Like there's something yeah, but, there, right? I've never, gotta... I've never heard <laughs> anyone yet who has said that even in those words, uh, has actually <laughs> been able to say, what's it actually mean to have have enough faith to accomplish what, what you mm-hmm. know I'm saying that that's, it's, yeah. it may sound good, but at the end of the day, what's that, what's that actually mean? What yeah. does that look like? What do you actually right. mean? Right. And then when people feel defeated, like, well, it's just my fault, yeah. but they don't know what to do about it. And then they're just scared. So yeah, it's great. So literal sense. Okay. So we don't have to spend much time here because I think th- there's, there's a lot you could unpack there, but obviously one of the most obvious literal points is that um, this is a, this is really a, a challenge between a pagan nation and the people of God over who is the true God. You know, Goliath is defying the armies of the living God. So this is a demonstration that Yahweh is the true God, the one true Lord of all nations. Um, you know, we see also there David in, in the ongoing you know, tension between David and, and Saul and, and the narrative is progressing. But Moving to the, you know, the typological or allegorical sense, um, you talked about the two actors before. Well, in this story, we, we, we can reduce this to like David and this is the story of David and Goliath, but there's really another, there's other parties involved here. One of the key parties is the people of God who are on the sidelines, scared and trembling and afraid and helpless in the face of this great enemy. 
And from among them, one of their own steps out as their representative and fights the battle on their behalf. And if he wins, his victory becomes their victory. And who is this but the great King David, you know? So the typological application is we as the people of God, you know, we're destined for destruction in the face of the great enemy, Satan, are standing and watching as our as our king steps out and and fights the, the battle against the principalities and powers. And because he conquers, his victory becomes our victory. He's our representative. He's our warrior king. And, and we're focused on, you know, before we can ever associate ourselves with David, we've got to associate ourselves with the people of God who depend on this king to fight for us. Yeah, so a lot of that, you find this all through early, early fathers, right? But a lot of this is because they understand the story of scripture to be a great cosmic story. It's more than that historic, you call it the, the literal sense, but they also call it the historical sense mm-hmm. of the text. Uh, it, it's that, but then there's this kind of cosmic sense. And so that's where this, this typological interpretation tends to ascend to. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, they, they see everything through this lens of a a great spiritual uh, battle, which, by the way, I would say in this discussion, um, is that's not that, that's not er- erroneous in itself, because Scripture is uh, does have a sort of cos- uh, cosmic significance to it, um, and uh, you know we know from Old and New Testament, that there are powers unseen working behind uh, what we do see. So there's the visible, there's the invisible, and God is God of of it all. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not to discount that at all, uh, but that's that's part of the method of then getting to a a moralistic reading uh, or to the moral interpretation of it. Um, so I'll, I'll let you continue there. I, I think I know where you're going, but go ahead. I want to speak. Well, yeah, I think just start like, but the, the key thing there is just like starting with just simple, like basic historical considerations and then just reading it in light of Christ. It's not, it's not really hard. I don't think to see Christ there. If you're, if you're attuned to it, I think the, 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 yeah. the challenge is it's like, we need this mindset. We need a mindset shift that when we come to the text, I'm looking for Jesus. You know, I was just reading uh, second Kings um, this morning for my, my devotions. And, you know, Jehu is, is anointed as King. And I think it was at Jehu and they cast his, they cast their robes, you know, in front of him. Well, we were just at Palm Sunday. Well, see here, we, here we have here, like a, like a t- typological reading of this. We see here as the anointed King and you know, cast down the robes before him. Like, this is all anticipatory. Like it's pointing to Christ. All these Kings that Eusebius says, like carry in themselves, the Royal authority of Christ. Like it's looking toward Jehu wasn't good enough. Solomon wasn't good enough. David wasn't good enough, but Jesus is good. You know, he is the true King. He is the King who's good enough. So just like this attentiveness to, to Christ in everything. So, but then the third sense, okay. So um, the moral sense, what we need to get there, like there is a moral application. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think for us, you know, this comes back to like theological interpretation of scripture. So the reason why, uh, so well, there was this whole like thing where uh, I think he's a popular preacher. I don't I can't think of what his name is. Uh, the village church, what's his name? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Is that Chandler? 
Yeah, yeah, Chandler. Yeah, he posted this thing on 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 social media one time a couple years back where he says, I'm like, you are not David. <laughs> so, you know, Jesus is David. And I want to say that's true, but we also have been united to Christ. So we have been united to this giant slaying king. His power has become our power. So we can draw applications from David's faith in life, but we have to do it through a Christ-centered lens. Mm-hmm. So we can be inspired, but, but we're, we're following ultimately Jesus, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's following his example. So I think we get to the moral sense, and then we could go on if you wanted, but I think that just really makes the point that I was trying to make. I don't know if you had anything to add there. Well, I think what happens, it's very easy. I mean, I, I've, I've done this before, so I, I can just speak out of experience. What happens to us sometimes is that we, we jump to moral applications uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we have this strong sense that we've got to make whatever we preach just really relevant to, to people so that they know what to do when they leave this, you know, this service. They, they need to know what to do. And so there's that. That's, that's legitimate. You know, we need to be shaping lives through, through preaching. And God intends that. But we often draw our moral, uh, our, our material, not from a careful reading of the text, but from experience and just the things that we're facing, right? From just Mm -hmm. life around us. And then that shapes our reading of the text, um, which again, it doesn't mean that we have to bridge the text with life today, but the pattern that the early fathers show us is a pattern that we should follow. We should start with the text and the historical sense. Uh, We should consider the text in the genre in which it's written, uh, this this literal or historical, um, in this case for Samuel 17, the historical context uh, and narrative that's given to us, and, and go from there and allow it to inform our life now. And uh, so a lot of, uh, it's easy to be moralistic because we are, we are not starting from the text itself, from scripture itself. We're starting with um, concerns that we have and then we go shopping in scripture to find out what um, what material there will best fit uh, our perceived need. Yeah, good. And, and what you said about uh, trying to be relevant or practical, I do. I hear that a lot. We've got to be practical. Um, and, you know, I, I just always want to ask, is it practical to help people see the glory of God in the face mm, of Jesus? Yeah, exactly. Is it relevant? to move people to worship in the presence of a giant slaying king who steps out on behalf of his people to conquer their enemies? Like, do you think that's going to have a practical impact on the daily lives of Christians? Maybe more of a practical impact than you trying to predict or transfer your lived experience onto them and make these super practical applications. Like we, we don't change people just by, you know, naming the situation and then giving them steps to walk through to, to that that's never had an impact on me that's never i have to say like i've never heard a sermon like that that has ever helped me i can't think of one but i can name countless sermons that i come back to that have shown me jesus and have given me confidence in him you know and they have they've shaped me deeply um so i think we've got to think too more in terms of forming people forming disciples 
um, and, and, and affecting their mindset and the way that they see God. You know, everybody loves that quote uh, from Tozer about the most important thing that, you know, about you is what comes in your mind when you think about God. We all know that that's true in some sense. We hear that and it resonates with us. But I wonder, does that conviction always transfer to our preaching and teaching where we really do want to help people see God and who he is and what he's done in Christ and how he's revealed himself. Yeah. So we're all pragmatists. We tend to be pragmatists, <laughs> right? It's, but listen to the psalmist, right? As you were saying that this came to mind, Psalm 27, you know, he, he desires so strongly one thing he says, I will seek after and that is to dwell in the house of the Lord in order to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. All right. Just, it, he just wants to behold the beauty of God. That seems like one of the most impractical things, you know, that we could, you know, that it, as, as Marva Don puts it, a um, royal waste of time, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a royal waste of time, but that's exactly what, uh, what, what our worship it's, it's, from a very earthly, pragmatic standpoint, it seems like why in the world would you spend so much time, you know, waiting before God? You know, get something, you know, do something about it yourself. No, 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 no. And I think the best way to not be a Pelagian is to learn to wait on God. Hmm. It is to tarry in prayer and not wait on God. The the best way to avoid moralistic preaching is to set your uh, to, to set our sermons before God and, and wait upon him, uh, quiet our minds and, and hearts and, and not just try to conjure up things in our minds of, of, of ways that we can just make this just really deeply, you know, a, a how to list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a challenge because I, I feel it. I preach every Sunday you do. We, we feel the, 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 um, the need, the pressure, the, the expectation that, okay, I've, I, I've talked about this you know, rich theology of, in scripture and they're not going to get it. They're not going to remember it if it doesn't touch some. And, and there, again, there is some truth to that, but then what yeah, happens yeah. is that it can be reduced down to, you know, these two or three little things. And those two or th- three applications may be very relevant and legitimate. Um, but they don't comprehend the majesty of of uh, of God's relationship and revelation to us. Yeah, uh, we can linger there a little bit if you like, because uh, t- you touched on a verse that's been very um, very special to me. I had an opportunity to meet an English professor from a local university uh, last week. And I shared a little bit of my story and how when I was in public school, my encounter with a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem was a really key moment in my uh, early faith. And I talked about how I feel like my entire life has been a quest after beauty. I've always loved, I mean, when other kids were out, you know, playing sports or whatever, I was, I was writing poetry. I just, I loved beauty. I loved art. I've always loved art and architecture. And we go on vacation. I don't want to go to the, you know, football hall of fame. I want to go to the nearest art museum or an antique shop. I just love beauty. And, you know, for me, it's always been about seeing the beauty of the Lord. There's a whole area of theology, theological aesthetics. You recommended a Jonathan King, 
book by me. I think it was his dissertation. It's excellent. Van Hooser, I think, oversaw that. It's just amazing. I highly recommend that. I think it's called The Beauty of the Lord or The Beauty of the King or something like that. But, you know, what What if we think about the transformative power of beauty in our preaching? Um, uh, that's what strikes me about the patristic sermons. I mean, you read you read a sermon from John Chrysostom, the the golden mouth preacher. You read a sermon from Gregory of Nazianzus. These are pieces of art. These are works of art. They are not dry. They are not boring. They are artistic and masterful. And and these were masters of, of oratory, and they were just brilliant in their delivery. And they just help you. They they build the tension, and they help to release it in Christ, and and just rest in His beauty. It's just incredible. What if we think about preaching as worship? What if we think about the act of preaching as inviting others to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? I, I think we have underestimated the transformative power of that. And I think, and and I'll just and just say this yet. As I had that conversation after I was driving, you know, then later that day and reflecting, if somebody asked me the question, what is the number one reason that you are a Christian? I would say almost without hesitation, beauty. That's why I'm a Christian. Truth is important to me. You know, yes, I want to know what's true. Absolutely. Uh, I want I want to know what's good. I want to, you know, do what's right. And I feel the pain of when I fail to live good. I feel the pain of that. There's a connection between holiness and happiness. But at the end of the day, what drives me is beauty. And my life goal is to help others to see the beauty of doctrine so that they can experience deeper satisfaction in God. So, yeah, I, I just think, how are you transforming your people, not just through application, not by being relevant only you know, in the terms of like a you know moralistic application, but also just helping people to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that beauty is best seen in the face of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, I guess, coming into this conversation, my, my primary thought had been this, that in our preaching, in my preaching, I want to, I want to glorify Christ. I want to exalt Christ. And if Christ is exalted through my preaching, and if people exalt Christ, through what they are hearing, then they will be changed. They will be changed. And yes, I will, I will suggest ways. Uh, I do. I gave three questions. Yeah. I ended this week with three questions to, to, for us all to be asking ourselves. Um, and I believe that that is exalting to Christ. So that, you know, this is not, you know, we are not saying not to preach practically. We're not saying not to, make you know careful and even sometimes very pointed application we mm-hmm. we must do that we must bridge the horizon of the text and, and where we are in life yes. uh, but we must allow uh, scripture to 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 speak to us theologically and we must read it and preach it theologically in such a way that that it is informing and shaping our uh, preaching and application rather than us just kind of bouncing off ideas and say, Hey, that fits. It'll preach. Uh, and and instead, instead starting with where we are taking it to scripture and, and, and simply bouncing it off of that uh, rather than being steeped with a theological imagination uh, that is being shaped by the spirit. We're, we're, we are drinking in the word and then turning and looking at 
at this portrait of life in the 21st century and saying, here's where we need to add some color into those lines from the, from the text, uh, from, right. from God's word. Um, yeah. And I, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I think it is important to, to hear that so that people don't misunderstand. Uh, like in my sermon on Sunday morning, I gave some very specific applications and as specific as praying for churches in our community or giving to missions or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm making these practical applications, but it's not what, it's not the thrust of what I'm doing. It flows out of that. It's, it's, you know, it's coming out of that. And, and that's the, I think that's the important point. Yeah. So, so how do I avoid moralistic preaching? Uh, here is, here's a practical way to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, no, it is, uh, don't, do not skip the, the, the why and the foundation, the theological foundation for why these applications are appropriate from this scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, uh, don't you know, just spend you know, a minute or two in the richness of the theology and then, you know, 28 minutes on, you know, the, the application, give the richness of doctrine of the theology of scripture. And, and then i uh, draw, draw out, you know, the, fitting applications. Uh, don't shortchange uh, theology in our preaching. Yeah. Do we have time for one more example sure. here? So I wanted to share this because this was a, you know, and you know, this was a really a, a turning point in my thinking, my theologizing, my preaching uh, came to the, the passage on the temptations of Christ. And I've heard many sermons on the temptations of Christ. And again, it's always moralistic. It's, it's always the three point outline are, you know, three ways you can beat temptation or three tips and tricks for beating temptation, that kind of approach. And it's like, you know, memorize scripture, Jesus memorized scripture. So you should memorize scripture. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. That's great. You know, I, I said that too, you know, at some point in my sermon, but I began to realize like, okay, first of all, what's going on here, you know, in the text, what's the, you know, the historical typological considerations. And I realized like, uh, you know, as, as a song that we all sing says for our sins, he was tempted. Like, so who is the main character of this story? This is about the temptations of Christ. We turn it and make a sermon all about us. We don't even talk about Jesus. We don't talk about its significance, but its greatest significance for, for us is not practical applications for tips and tricks of beating temptation, however important that may be. It's that for us and our salvation, he was tempted. And I began to realize that Matthew presents the temptations of Jesus using almost identical language, almost word for word from Deuteronomy 8, where just as Israel was led into the wilderness by God to be tested for 40 years, they got hungry, God gives them manna from on high to learn that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. He gets hungry, but he refuses to do the man a miracle. He refuses to take it into his own hands, turn the stone into bread. He trusts his heavenly father and his provision. And so where Israel failed, Christ was victorious. Then the next temptation, you see the same thing. They they committed idolatry. He refuses to bow for you shall worship the Lord your God alone. All the temptations parallel to Israel's wilderness temptations. So he's reliving 
Israel's history, but doing it right this time, recapitulating Israel's history. And then there's this even bigger, you know, picture thing where he's, he's the new Adam. And as he, he rejects the forbidden food, whereas Adam, you know, partook of the forbidden food. So he's recapitulating Adam's failure. So he does this so that our failures can be replaced by his victories. And so that gives you the context for what is Christ doing for us in our salvation, then to make applications for how now united to Christ, the new Adam, the new head, our new head, we now can live victoriously over temptations. And it just brings a totally different focus uh, and motivation to the whole message. Yeah, certainly. So so in order to, to uh, for a preacher to take a longer look at a passage such as that. Uh, We've got to understand the Bible in terms other than a self-help book. Uh, Because Mm. that's really how it's treated today. I mean, Mm. a a common Christian today reads the Bible based on a self-help criteria, just like they would any self-help book that you can buy on Walmart. Uh, they use it that way. What does the Bible say about joy? All right, so they you know look at their little reference. What what's the Bible say about joy? What's the Bible say about giants? What's the Bible say about finances? And it's very much a a self help uh, mentality, right? That people bring. What pastors have to demonstrate an appropriate way to approach scripture. Uh, it's not a self help book. Uh, it is. Uh, it is a. It, it's the. It's the Spirit's word to us. It's God's word to us, and we have the author himself, who indwells within us to open up the riches of His grace and His salvation, and it must be read theologically, and uh, must be read uh, relationally, and that is with uh, you know a real relationship with God. You know, so we could talk about that sometime. I think we're going to talk about the Doctrine of Revelation uh, sometime soon. and uh, But not in this just self-help mode. Yeah. So before you see the Bible as a roadmap to the Christian life, as it's so commonly said, see the Bible as a mosaic that shows us Christ. Start with the fundamental image that dominates you is this is the revelation of God. This is the revelation of Christ. This is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. This is showing us the triune God. And when we encounter the triune God in the book, we're changed and transformed. And in that context, we're able to receive and apply and live out the applications that are important for, for daily living. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joys podcast. Email your questions to podcast at holyjoys.org and they may be featured on a future episode. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.